Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm Lauren Good, co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab podcast. And this week, we're talking all about AI, specifically how artificial intelligence can be used to make suggestions to your writing as you're writing things to eliminate bias. Of course, the big question is, will AI ever replace all of our writing tasks? And what happens if the technology that's designed to eliminate bias is biased itself? It's a special episode this week because a couple people from our regular Gadget Lab are out of the office traveling. So it's just me in studio. And the interview you're about to hear is from our Wire 25 conference late last year. It's a conversation I had with Kieran Snyder. Kieran is the co-founder and CEO of Textio, a Seattle-based startup that has created what Snyder calls an augmented writing platform. And it's fascinating. We talked a lot about how Textio works, what kinds of words and phrases are biased that you might not even realize are biased, and how she envisions things like Textio being used more broadly in the workplace. All right, without any more wind-up, here's Kieran Snyder from Textio. Please welcome Kieran Snyder in conversation with Wired's Lauren Good. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today, for being here. And thank you to Karen Snyder for yeah, thank you for having me. joining us at Wired 25. Uh, just a quick intro for Kieran. Kieran is the co-founder and CEO of Textio, which we're going to talk all about. And prior to that, you were a program manager at Microsoft for nearly a decade. Is that right? More or less. More or less. <laughs> and uh, she also uh, has a PhD in linguistics and cognitive science. She is, I think by all definitions, a linguistics expert. And so we're going to talk about that as well. Um, and I know for some of you who have been in earlier podcast tapings, you're aware at this point that there is something of like a kid carnival going on next door, uh, thanks to Google. And, uh, and so you may hear some noise as kids, you know, take their aggressions out on robots and things like that. <laughs> but that's what we like on the Gadget Lab podcast. It just adds to the atmosphere. So um, thank you for your patience as we um, deal with the noise. So um, I think a good place to start would probably be 
be to ask, what is Textio? What does Textio do? So Textio is an augmented writing platform. So then the next question is, what's an augmented writing platform? Right? Think of it as a word processor that is designed to tell you who's going to respond to the things that you're writing. So based on the patterns of language that you're using, uh, you may resonate more with one audience versus another. Maybe you're writing uh, a job description and you're trying to figure out how to get the most qualified people to apply or maybe you are writing a message to a colleague and you're trying to figure out how to get them to engage and not kind of select out um, but that's what Textio is. And who are you selling that product to? We sell to businesses today, uh, generally to leaders in people, so people who are involved with hiring or internal communications or HR, uh, but it's always into businesses, uh, companies of all sizes. What kinds, I mean, when you say um, companies of all sizes, what businesses specifically can you share? Some names that people might recognize. Sure. Uh, everything from Cisco and Johnson and Johnson to Slack to NASA. Um, we're really excited about the NASA one. When our team got to go visit NASA in the onsite, they came back with the NASA t-shirts. We have a lot of space nerds at the company. Um, but really, uh, a large range of organizations, governments, uh, you know, civil organizations as well as large enterprises. I thought it might be helpful to describe for the audience what's happening as they're using Textio's software. So you're in this augmented writing platform. And um, one of the examples that we've talked about before, because Karen was also in an issue of Wired uh, earlier this year, um, is you know, you're a hiring manager or recruiter and you're typing something up and you use a word like, I'm looking for a ninja, you know, or I'm looking for a Don't rock use star, that word. right? <laughs> yeah. And I see, I see Guy laughing because she now works at LinkedIn and she's like, yes, I see this all day long. Okay. So, so you see phrases like this. And one of the things that shocked me is you were telling me how kind of coded those words are and, and, and that the software actually flags that. So like paint a picture for us is someone's typing up an, an email or a query or something in, in your software and like what actually happens? Yeah. So I think I'll ask you to think about, you're a writer, maybe this never happens to you, um, but think about the last time you had to write a really sensitive email really sensitive piece of communication. And you knew before you pressed send on it that it was a little bit risky. Um, and if you're like other people, what you probably did in that situation is you ask someone you trust to give it a read through before you send it, right? And maybe they'll catch something about how it's going to land. And maybe if they catch something, you're going to make a few changes and you'll press send and you won't be in trouble, right? Textio is like 500 million of those second opinions. So as you are writing, Textio is comparing your language to the language of other similar documents that the system has seen before, where it knows who has responded to you. And so you are getting suggestions, you are getting language patterns promoted to you that will work well in your situation. So if you are saying ninja in the context of a hiring document, you are statistically very likely to attract only people who identify as men for the role, right? So we see these patterns uh, all the time. So one of our uh, favorite examples from one of my alma maters, uh, Amazon uses the word maniacal on their career site 11 times more often than the rest of the technology industry. 
And I guarantee you there is no HR person at Amazon running around telling people to describe the workplace as maniacal. Like that's not a brand goal. But when they do, statistically, it changes their candidate pool. And when all of us hear that, none of us are that surprised, right? Because when you have thousands of people using a pattern in common, it reveals something deep about the culture. When you say it changes their hiring pattern, how does it skew it exactly? Who does it Maniacal definitely draws fewer candidates who identify as women to the role. Or you hear something like Uber uses whatever it takes 30 times more often than the rest of the industry um, has a similar impact. It draws more candidates who identify as men and specifically white men. Uh, and that is not their intentional goal, probably, in using that language, but it happens nonetheless. So you say that you're, the software is comparing the document that you're working on at that moment in real time with 500, you said 500 million other documents, it's potentially? actually just close to 600 million close to now 600 million. other documents where Textio has measured the response rates uh, in the past. And those are all Textio documents or you, you've you pulled that data from somewhere else? For Those are Textio documents. Those okay. are all documents inside our data stream and training set. And of course, when I'm writing not all 600 million are relevant to what I'm writing. So Textio kind of slices and dices the data set so that you get the set that is most relevant. So if I'm hiring an engineer in San Francisco, I have a very different comparison set than if I'm hiring an accountant in New York, for okay. instance. And you have two you have two different kinds of products. One is, as you described, you've done the writing already, and then you're sort of sending it through this, this processor. And then the other is the the suggestions are happening in real time. Well, there. That- uh, so I, I would slice it a little bit differently. Okay. Um, all of Textio is a real-time writing experience, but any kind of learning loop platform, and we think of Textio as a learning loop platform, which means that as you're using it, you're making the system more intelligent for everybody who is using it. I think there are sort of three key pieces. The first is about being able to predict what's going to happen, right? So as you're writing, can Textio make a prediction of who's going to engage? Right. The second piece is making a suggestion to change something maybe that you've just typed and say, okay, actually, instead of the word manage in this context, maybe use the word lead or run or handle because you get a different impact. And the third, which I think you're probably talking about, is the ability to create language more proactively. So if the system knows that I'm hiring somebody with a machine learning background and 10 years of experience, it can proactively morph those sort of notes into language that's going to work really well for that role. One of my other, uh, the other stories that you told me that became one of my favorites was how you figured out that big data was over. (laughs) <laughs> people saying big data and job posting was very like five years ago that sort of had its moment. But now it's seen as a little bit more outdated. Yeah. And the same thing's happening with AI. So mm-hmm. actually, when we started the company, which is about five years ago, um, it was right as big data as a language pattern was on the decline. So if you were to go back maybe six or seven years ago, if you were describing your work as involving big data, Uh, In the context of a job description or, by the way, a startup you were trying to get funding for, it was really, really popular. Um, If you use it in a hiring context, you got more people to apply. You got more qualified people to apply. It was a pretty, you know, hot term at the time. And what happens with any kind of marketing 
thing that becomes popular is people copy it. And when people copy it, then it becomes so pervasive that it loses that differentiating impact that it once had. And today, if you were to use big data, people would giggle a little bit, right? Because it became so popular that it became a cliche. And so today, if you were to use big data in the context of hiring, the jobs would fill significantly more slowly because fewer people would apply. And the same thing is happening with artificial intelligence today. It's, it's clearly hit its saturation point and beginning the decline. So in some ways, you're using AI to determine that the phrase AI may be on the outs. <laughs> there you go. Okay. I would say we're using learning loops. <laughs> that's right. Because maybe loops. that's what's next. <laughs> right, right. So I think the, the natural question is, when does this software become more widely available? When does it become something that all of us are using in um, software? Like we can plug it into our Google Docs or our Office 365 um, so that as consumers, we have access to these augmented writing tools. Um, and it's not just something that other businesses and you know hiring managers at businesses are using. Yeah. I mean, all of us are both employees and consumers. And I think the line is generally pretty blurry between the things we use at home and the things we use at work. So um, when we talk about learning loops, I'll just note that in our consumer lives, we've been using similar software for quite a while, right? Every time you're driving with Waze or Google Maps, it's fundamentally the same principle involved, right? You're sharing your coordinates with the software and so is everyone else on the road and therefore we're all getting where we're going a little bit faster. Or when you're trying to listen to music in Spotify and you're getting recommendations from people who have patterns a lot like you. So sort of the learning loop technology has been present for a really long time in our consumer lives. And I think in the last three to four years, we are increasingly expecting to be augmented at work. Um, writing is just kind of one domain. So I guess uh, I'll ask that again. Do you plan <laughs> to launch a consumer version of your software? Perhaps. I mean, right now there are so many areas in businesses that have really high impact to businesses, right? We started with hiring because every business really is impacted primarily by who chooses to work there. That's the thing that makes or breaks the business. But if you think about all the places you're writing at work, whether you are making software as we do at our company or you're making t-shirts, like the thing you're actually probably making the most of every day is words. And the opportunity in a business that's really interesting is companies do have voice and culture that emerge in the language that they use. So for Uber to use whatever it takes so often is not something that's just a fact about their hiring language. It's a fact about their language in general. So I wouldn't rule out something that is consumer oriented, but the cultural patterns when you look at large organizations are very interesting from a language perspective. So we're really highly focused there right now. Speaking of large organizations, I mean, what happens when companies like Google or Microsoft start to bake some of these features directly into their very popular you know, productivity suites. I, when I was at Microsoft earlier this year and they were making some updates to 365, this is ahead of their big annual software uh, event. One of the things I saw was that in WordNow, there's a refine your writing tool mm -hmm. 
where um, some of the words that specifically were flagged were things like if you wrote that you were making a gentleman's agreement, mm-hmm. um, it, the software might actually flag that and say, that's not inclusive writing. Here's another suggestion. Or if you were to say housewife, it would correct it and say, how about homemaker? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not gendered. And so um, it seems like the big tech companies could have the ability just to, to build this effectively, wh- how do you stay competitive and differentiate when you know that you know that all of like these really smart people are working on these tools at, you know, at Google and Microsoft? Well, but they're not working on these tools. They're mm-hmm. working on broad word processing platforms, which is a little, quite different. Like that's the world that both my co-founder and I came from. And actually, we were uh, both involved in productivity software at Microsoft in leadership roles for quite a while. And the challenge with something like Microsoft Word and Google Docs is paradoxically its scale. So the fact that a billion people use Microsoft Word uh, you know, every year, it's a huge market. It's probably bigger than a billion now. It was a billion a couple of years ago. They're using it to write all kinds of things. And that means you lose the concept of outcomes, Right. So the best you can do when you're writing, you're making software that should be working for a billion people writing all kinds of things at the same time is including shallow rules to say, hey, gentlemen's agreement, that's a little bit biased or, hey, you put your comma in the wrong place or, wow, your sentences are kind of long. These are not things that are telling you at all who's going to respond because you can't build a response based model for a billion kinds of communication at the same time. The opportunity of augmented writing is actually to focus specifically on a domain where, you know, in the case of jobs, it's really about who is responding to you. There's a feedback loop that can be measured. Broad word processors don't have that kind of feedback loop. It's a very different writing scenario. It's it's almost I mean you're 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 saying that you're one of your differentiators is that you can measure the effectiveness that what that se- the the project that somebody is working on in your software is actionable. There has to be some type of the person has to respond to the job posting as opposed to like writing a dear diary entry in Microsoft Word that nobody's going to see or some other sort of draft that potentially might not have impact. That's exactly it. So if you think about all the places you use Microsoft Word or Google Docs when you're writing, you use it to jot down notes, you use it to write marketing documents, you use it to write specs, you use it to write articles, you use it to write all kinds of things. And it's not clear across that whole set what kind of feedback loop you would even measure. It's a super valuable thing to have a broad word processor, but it's a different kind of thing. I actually see the Microsoft Word features much more in competition with like a Grammarly, which also is really about shallow rules that work across all the kinds of thing you're writing rather than something that sort of superpowers your writing for a very particular scenario. Hi again, we're going to take a quick break here, but stay tuned for the rest of the conversation with Kieran Snyder from Textio. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. 
Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Why do humans need this software? Like, Why is it that we're not able just to, after working on a couple of drafts or learning a lesson ourselves over time we've you know we've put up a bunch of job postings and we're not getting a response so we tweak the words and we hope that it's more effective right we have our own abilities to sort of learn patterns over time why is it that we're not able just to i don't know sort of figure out our own biases in writing and and need to even rely on software like this I think we can figure out some of our own biases in a very limited way, but we're always going to be limited by the experience that we've had, A, and observed, B, right? And the opportunity to have my observations augmented by hundreds of millions of other people's observations means I have the opportunity to learn more. And the reality is that the more different somebody is from me, the worse I'm going to be at guessing what is going to resonate or alienate that other person, right? When we ask that trusted colleague for the second opinion looking over our shoulder, it's because we inherently know that we're probably not guessing correctly all the time. There's probably something a little bit wrong. Those are the cases we know about. Most of the cases of unconscious bias, by definition, we don't know that we have, Right. That's what it means for them to be unconscious. And so we're all limited by what we've experienced and been able to observe about that experience. That's just part of what it means to be human. So what happens when we get to a point where augmented writing tools and platforms are changing our language in such a way that a lot of our language all starts to look alike? I'm writing the same thing that my colleague Boone is writing, that my editor Mike is writing. You know, what happens when the word corrections that are coming through just are, we all start to sort of look the same in our creative endeavors? Well, you're a writer. So let me ask you what you would do in that situation. Uh, well, you're, yes, I'm a writer. So in some ways, Textio terrifies me and delights me. <laughs> I don't want it taking my job. But at the same time, it seems like it could be a really useful tool. Um, so I guess, I guess if let's say, okay, so, so I mean, forget Textio. Okay. What do you do right now? If you notice that tech writers are writing in a similar way about similar themes, what do you do? You're a writer. Uh, I adjust, I adjust my own output. I say, and I do that a lot. Actually, we have, we have, you know, at Wired, we're very attuned to what we call echoes. You know, if you're using the same word over and over again in copy and uh, well, you've said the word uh, saturation three times, I'm literally just making up a word right now, but you know, you've said that three times in your copy, uh, go back and, ch- and change two of them, right? So you've only, you only have one instance. So I guess it would be the same thing if I was reading a bunch of articles and I realized how huh, we're all starting to echo each other in some way. I'd, probably try to craft some unique or or different way to say it. And that's what the best writers do. Whether people converge on a voice because they're using software or not, 
the best writers always find a way to sound different. When everybody starts using big data, somebody realizes that artificial intelligence is next. And when everybody's using artificial intelligence, somebody realizes that learning loops are next. And that's how language evolves. It's not a static system. We don't sound the way that our parents sounded or their parents sounded, or certainly the way people sounded 100 years ago. That's not how we sound today. We use different words. We put words together differently. The sounds we use have changed over time. So the system keeps moving. So even if you have software that guided people in some cases where they're part of the same organization to some kind of unified voice, the best writers always find a way to subvert that. And so it means that the software is always learning from what the best writers are doing at any given time. And that's actually something really important at Textio is we look at the writers who are most successful in the platform and we look at what patterns they appear to be innovating before the rest of the system has caught on to it. So a simple example, uh, in the case of job posts, over the last year, successful job posts have gotten shorter. They've shed about 100 words. Okay. And Textio knew that was going to happen like really, really early on. And it's not because it showed up in our broad data set, but it's because the pattern showed up in the writing of people who were otherwise scoring the highest in the platform. And so the best writers always find a way to stand out, to push the system forward in ways that are really big or really small. Is it possible for your technology to work sort of in the inverse? So rather than the software being applied at the point that somebody is crafting a document, the technology is actually reading something that's already been written. Perhaps it's the response that comes in, which I think opens up a whole other can of worms, right? Um, when you're when you're screening candidates effectively for jobs. Um, can your software work that way as well? So at the language platform level, Textio and any kind of platform that was built similarly would be able to adapt to any kind of text with an outcome attached. The outcome part is really important. Otherwise, you do become just a general purpose sort of word processor and you lose the predictive power of what the software can do. Um, but it's all about where is the highest impact opportunity to help people say what they mean without guessing, put their best foot forward. So a totally viable scenario would be to help the job seeker put their best foot forward in an application. And by the way, that is a scenario a lot of our companies that we partner with are very interested in us enabling um, because they too want job seekers who are strong that they can hire. And it's not the case that for every job, your ability to write a resume or a cover letter has anything to do with your job qualification. So if you could help people put their best foot forward, it would help screeners understand the real skills that could be applicable. Like I think there's a possibility to be very virtuous for both the hirer and the person trying to be hired. So what's interesting, and I know that we've talked before about how you refer to it as an augmented writing platform, not an AI writing platform. Um, but I think a lot of people are hearing, okay, AI, this is definitely some type of artificial intelligence that's being applied here to a very human experience. Um, what's, what's interesting is that you are in some ways using AI to combat biases that creep into our writing where AI itself is known to have mm -hmm. biases because of the humans that are that are putting together the data and feeding this data into the AI. So I guess how worried are you about 
your own software potentially absorbing biases as it is being deployed to combat biases in the hiring process. That's something we think about all the time. So I don't know if you remember maybe a year and a half ago, uh, Amazon got in some trouble by trying to build hiring software that automatically matched their candidates with their open roles. And they tried to build it for internal use only. And what happened is just what you would expect, which is the software repeated the exact biases that had been present in their hiring patterns for the prior decade, right? And so if certain roles um, were generally filled by men or by white people or by young people, the software went and picked men and white people and young people for those roles. And of course, that's a huge problem, and which is not at all what they intended when they designed it. And so when we think about that at Textio, it's really important that people's uh, data be able to be anonymized and aggregated so you can view it at the organization level, but also at the industry level, the geography level, and the role level and lots of ways to slice and dice it. It's not a perfect solution. So I'll say like industries, geographies, and roles also have biases, but the bigger you can make the relevant data set and the more aspects, you know, facets you can cover, the more likely you are to mitigate the bias that can be there in the data set. And then of course, the fact that it's outcome-based, again, means that you have the opportunity to learn pretty quickly. And we're talking, you know, tens of millions of documents every single month coming into the system with outcomes. You can see pretty quickly if you propagate patterns that are promoting the same kinds of biases and you have an opportunity to detect that, which is different, again, than an AI system that is just making a prediction. Mm -hmm. We're making a prediction, measuring the feedback loop, and then promoting different guidance in response to what happens. Are you ever using any third party or outside data to to build your technology? We don't really use outside data. Mm -hmm. We definitely have places in the system where we use outside libraries for things that we think are components of the data experience. So this could be things like a parser or a spell checker, right? These are data-backed experiences that are not the most differentiating part of Textio. And there are some really good, I think of them as very commoditized uh, components now in the industry. So in those places where we contribute to open source, we use components pretty actively. But for the parts that are Textio's core data engine, it's Textio data. We're going to take just another quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to wrap up the conversation with Kieran. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Explain a little bit more when you're when you said that you you're looking very closely at the data in terms of things like geographies, mm -hmm. right, locations, and things like that. And by doing that, you're you're hoping to thwart bias. 
explain explain that a little bit like for for people who who you know aren't um ai experts and are trying to understand how you actually um, prevent bias from creeping into a technology how does that work so let's i have a bunch of geography examples but let's start with an industry example because i think it'll help people understand the bias part a little bit more um, I think we all know that the technology industry has a diversity and inclusion problem that's gotten a lot of attention in the last decade, especially. Um, however, some companies are doing better with this work than other companies, right? So if you look at the sort of relatively new crop of recently IPO'd tech companies, you look at an Atlassian or you look at like a Slack, they are doing better not perfectly, but better relative to some of the old entrenched uh, larger organizations. And even within the older organizations, you could look at like a Microsoft compared to like a Cisco. And Cisco is currently the most diverse Cisco that they've been since the year 2000, right? So there is high variation in individual organizations about how successfully they are combating their issues. And so if you want to help a company that has highly entrenched bias problems, they can do a lot better if they can learn while they're writing from the outcomes that have helped other companies be a little bit more successful in drawing a diverse pipeline. And this is the kind of thing, one of the wonderful things about working with leaders of people or diversity and inclusion is they very much buy into the premise that a rising tide lifts all boats. Right. If I'm a diversity and inclusion leader, I have a really hard job. And if and if you're succeeding at your company, instead of feeling threatened by that, I'm probably pretty excited about it because it means we're working together to create change, you know, in the context of an industry. So the opportunity to aggregate, normalize, anonymize data so that companies might be who might be doing better with one aspect can help another company who isn't and vice versa is generally very appealing to this audience. How do the companies you work with and sell your software to feel about the fact that some of their the technology they're using is actually being powered from data that's from other tech companies? I think generally quite positive. Mm-hmm. I think people see it as a big opportunity because when we work in technology, we understand that a broader data set is a more powerful data set. They don't see the outcomes from other companies. They don't even necessarily see the unique patterns from other companies. But the broader algorithms, when I say, hey, go ahead and replace synergy with alignment as you're writing in Textio, the fact that it's gleaned over a much larger data set is an asset. I mean, I'll I'll ask you, do you object to getting better directions and ways because the other drivers on the road are contributing their coordinates like it's very very similar in terms of how people see it it's, okay. it's a win-win interesting so one of the questions that we've been asking throughout the conference is um, because the theme of the conference is move fast and fix things as opposed <laughs> to breaking things um and i know that textio is certainly trying to fix things in some way which is uh how optimistic are you feeling right now about tech the tech industry and the future of tech, specifically as it pertains to what you're building. So I have, again, a very biased orientation on the question because I look at my own company 
right? So like I'm making software to help companies, but I also founded and lead a company, right? Our company is minority male, including in engineering. It's 30% black and Latinx. It's more than 25% LGBTQ identifying. Like we don't look like other technology companies. Our board is more than half women. Our leadership team is half women. Like we just don't look like other companies. And that tells me it can be done. And we're not 10 people anymore either, right? So the bigger we get, the more interesting these patterns become and you develop a reputation as a place that people can come bring their whole selves to work. We're not the only company that is looking different than the industry has looked before. And it's so easy to overlook that because there are a lot of organizations that look just like companies have looked for the last 10 or 15 years, but increasingly that is less and less true. And so I have tremendous optimism for the industry because I've been able to build a company that looks like what a modern company is supposed to look like in 2019. Uh, Kieran, I think we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining me on the Gadget Lab podcast and thank you. for your thoughtful answers. And uh, thank you to everybody who joined us. Yeah. All right, that wraps up my conversation with Kieran Snyder from Textio. We're grateful that she was able to participate in the Wired 25 conference late last year. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. Our show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Our consulting executive producer is Alex Kappelman. And we'll be back next week with our regular cast of characters. I'm Reid Hoffman. And I'm Aria Finger. If you're interested in learning about how technology and humanity can come together to make a better future, then Possible is for you. We invite ambitious builders and deep thinkers like Trevor Noah, Kara Swisher, Sam Altman, and so many more. Help us sketch out the brightest version of the future and what it will take to get there. If you want to be part of the future today, then subscribe to Possible wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.